Palmer and welcome to the Punks in Suits podcast. Does work have to be this way? No, it does not. You can make a big splash in the world without sacrificing your soul to do it. Call it existential angst, a midlife crisis, or just the desire to have another throw of the dice. You're ready to rethink this whole work thing and configure a life and a career that really reflects who you are and what you care about. Together, we can do this. Together, we're punks in suits. Hello and welcome to episode 63 of the Punks in Suits podcast. I hope you're very well. It is less than four weeks to go until we hit the road with our camper van and take off for a year of travelling around Europe in the lovely Lady Luck, as we are calling her, um, visiting different countries and working in a sort of digital nomadic way, world schooling as we go. It's a massive, massive adventure. Um, It's hard to think about anything else. But I am thinking about other things because... The departure from this house and the start of that digital nomadic adventure marks a shift in my professional focus as well. As you will have gathered from listening to the show lately, while leadership continues to be a passionate focus for me, I am broadening my definition away from just being a leader in your business, a leader of people pursuing the company's latest strategy, to being a leader of a new movement a movement to transform work and the nature of business. It just seems to me that it's not enough to focus your leadership on getting some people in your business to do the this year's latest strategy that just doesn't seem a big enough agenda for leadership. Most companies are stuck in a very 19th or 20th century view of themselves and the world and the way that they operate within the world. And I think that has to change. It's increasingly hard for companies to achieve their true purpose. It's increasingly hard to squeeze out profits. Uh, It's increasingly hard to actually stay sane and balanced when you work in these companies. The hours are long. The expectations are huge. The competition is intense. It's harder and harder to get stuff done these days and actually produce the service or the product you're there to produce because we're just so busy and have so many competing priorities. And not to forget that levels of trust in business and business leaders are at an all-time low. So to me, that is not a sustainable way to carry on. And it's not just companies that are stuck, but we are too. The idea of the career ladder, work-life balance. I mean, no one liked that term, even when it was brand new. We certainly don't like it now. Uh, Working hours, this idea of working hours, our definitions of what a successful working professional life looks like, the sacrifices we think are inevitable to achieve that. Even having to have a job, we're not questioning it. We're taking it for granted that this is the way that life has to be. Well, I believe that we can't call ourselves leaders if we're happy to collude with a broken system. True leadership has got to be about rethinking how we work and rethinking the role of business. And that starts with the very personal choices we make about how we configure our own lives. And that's one of the reasons that we're off on our travels. 
I really want to test out how work and life can blend. How far can you push that? So there's some stuff happening in the business. Um, there's going to be a change of name in part of the business, uh, a new brand, if you like, a, a new project. Um, I'm going to be renaming this podcast. All will be revealed in the coming weeks. And I am going to be moving away from talking about corporate leadership to talking about how we do this leadership on a personal level, how we question the ways that we work and how we construct a way of working and living that really reflects who we are and what matters to us. The background of that conversation is that there is, I think, a bigger movement to rethink business and the role of business as a force for good in the world. But much of what I'll be talking about on the show is really personal. How do you do that in your own life? I mean, before you start leading a movement to trying to get other people to do it, how do you do it in your own life? If you're fed up of making massive sacrifices in your personal life to pursue a professional goal or professional success, and you want to find a way to live a much more blended life and still do good, still make a difference, not drop out, then this is what we're going to do together. And that's why I wanted to bring you today's show now, before the rebrand. I did um and ah about bringing it to you because... It really is about leadership and leadership development in corporates. And when I did the interview, I hadn't got quite the clarity that I do now about the direction of the show. So in some ways, this interview is more like some of the early interviews I did for the show, you know, last year and even the year before. But I think today's guest is so forward thinking in his topic and so aligned with this idea that we just cannot continue to do things in business the way that we've done them. In particular, the way that we lead in business and the way that we think about leadership. I thought that was so relevant and so inspiring that I, I decided I'm gonna bring you the interview anyway. So my guest is Peter Hawkins. He's part-time executive professor of leadership at Henley Business School, where he's researching the next generation of leadership and leadership development. He's also visiting professor at the universities of Bath and Oxford Brooks, and he's the founder and emeritus chairman of the Bath Consultancy Group and Renewal Associates. He's the author of a brilliant report, and I'll put a link to this report at the end of the show, called Tomorrow's Leadership and the Necessary Revolution in Today's Leadership Development. And it was that report that came my way um, last year that made me think this is a person I've just got to speak to. So I hope you will enjoy this interview, whether you're in HR, whether you're a leader yourself, whether you're thinking of leaping out of corporate world and trying to find a way of working that is more blended. I still think there's tons and tons in this for you. So without further delay, here is the interview. Peter, it's a real privilege to have you on, on the show today. I've been looking forward to this interview for ages. In fact, really ever since I read the report in the summer, uh, which we're going to talk about today and, and just thought, okay, so he's just said everything I, I think, but with the kind of gravitas that comes from being a professor of these things. Indeed. Well, it's, it's lovely to be here to uh, talk with you, Blair. Well, let's launch straight in. Before, before we get into, because the whole report is about leadership and the future of leadership and the future of leadership development but i think maybe 
as ever we should clarify our terms. So when we talk, when you talk about leadership, what do you mean? Well, first of all, um, when, when I talk about leadership, I always say that leadership does not reside inside leaders. And that has two aspects. One is that leadership is always, uh, for leadership to appear, it's a relational activity. You can't have leadership unless there are three things present. A leader, followers, and thirdly, and probably most importantly, a shared challenge or purpose that requires collaboration. So I sometimes say, look, if you have a leader with a great purpose but no followers, you don't have leadership, you have a voice crying in the wilderness. If you have followers with a great purpose but nobody orchestrating that, directing that and organizing that, you have a passionate mob. But even if you have a leader and followers and you have no shared purpose, you don't have leadership. You have something which is kind of very common in our society, which is celebrity stalking or the Twitter sphere. You know, you have someone like Stephen Fry with millions of followers on the Twitter sphere. That's not leadership. You've got a leader and followers, but that's not leadership. You have to have something that requires a collaborative response, which involves leaders, followers, and a shared purpose. And secondly, you know, I think we're moving into a world, I wrote an article, 2011, I think it was, um, which was, the heroic CEO is dead, long live the team. Because today, if an organization, the only point where the organization comes together and is integrated is the CEO. And if the CEO is the only one who can represent the whole of the organization to the the myriad of stakeholders, then that organization is on the road to extinction. They, they won't survive in today's complex world. You know, we, leadership is now a, is a team sport, not an individual sport. Yeah, there's so much of that, that that we could pick up on. I'm interested in your use of followers because I've been increasingly reluctant to talk about followers. Um, simply because I think it gives the impression that people are kind of blindly almost following someone off a cliff. And, and instead I've talked about leaders, um, two types of leadership, one which is leadership that creates followers um, and one that is leadership that creates more leadership. Yeah. So, so maybe you should, maybe it'd be useful to know from you what you mean by followers because it actually sounds from from that definition that you gave that at any one time you might be leading you might be following and I guess there are certain circumstances where there isn't a challenge in that moment and leadership isn't really required in that moment yeah yeah now I would agree with all of those um, and, and perhaps a better term would be collaborators because Leadership is only required where, where, where a challenge or, or an endeavor or a purpose requires collaboration. So, so I, I agree with you. I think that the, the word follower kind of probably gives us too much a sense of dependency. And yes, I agree with you. We need more sense of collective leadership, which means joint ownership. But, but I, I, I would still say at some level, and it can move around, but you do need people who are orchestrating the collaborative response. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. 
You talked there, just touched on the context in which organizations and, and leaders are operating now. And that that's obviously sits behind the report is there's something going on. You call it a revolution, a necessary revolution. Maybe you can describe, and I'm sure, you know, listeners to this are really aware of, of some of these trends because I talk about them all the time and they know about them anyway. Um, but what are some of the, the major trends that you're seeing that are forcing us to rethink leadership and the way we develop leaders? Well, in the, in the two years where we went out and we interviewed CEOs, HR directors, and very importantly, millennial future leaders. These were, these were people under 35 that the CEO and HR director said would be you know, part of the top team within the next five years. Yeah. And, and we looked at their kind of different perspectives. And, and a number of the trends, you know, were ones we expected to hear about. Um, you know, the one that was most talked about was um, the, the VUCA world. You know, one CEO said, look, we've been talking about it for 10 years. Now we're living it daily. And actually the rate of change is getting faster and faster. But, but there were some that came more as a surprise to me. So the CEO who said, look, I wake up, he's running a very successful global business. And he said, I wake up terrified every morning. I could feel it over the telephone from New York. He said, every morning I wake up terrified because if we just stick to what we're successful at today, we'll be dead in the water in five years time. And yet, if I go chasing every innovation that's out there, we'll also be dead in the water. He said, so what I need to do is to find a way of running an organization where um, I've got part of my organization consciously disrupting and setting out to disrupt what makes us successful today. And, and a number of the, uh, the CEOs talked about um, Uberization, <laughs> which is a, a verb I hadn't heard before, you know, which was in, in the old days, um, competition came from people having a, a better product or better thought leadership. And then the Japanese in the 1980s changed that and, and competition came from not, not having a better product, but a, a better process and, and, and a better and quicker route to market. So it was all about not product, but process. And now it's changed again. And competition is coming from very different places. It's coming from people who are redesigning and reorchestrating the whole value chain. You know, whether that's Uber or Netflix or Airbnb or, or you know, a number of insurance CEOs who said, look, you know, when Amazon entered the insurance business, the whole industry will change fast. And, and, and that level of disruption, I think, was new. And, and I think the other, the other area that, that I hadn't quite seen in the same light was um, how the, what we call the hollowing out of organizations. Every large organization said, we will be employing less people in the next five to 10 years because of digitalization, Robotization, artificial intelligence, but also outsourcing. But a number of them said, at the same time we'll be reducing the people in, we employ, the number of stakeholders we have to partner with will get much greater and more complex. And I think that fundamentally changes leadership because 
most leadership development, you know, it still operates on how do I lead myself? How do I lead my team? How do I lead my function? How do I lead my organization? And that is not tomorrow's game. Tomorrow's game is, you know, not, not vertical leadership of, of leading bigger and bigger cohorts of people. It's about how do I partner with people who aren't on my payroll? Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it makes me um, wonder whether this is even a human task. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about some of the tipping points. You talk about some of the assumptions that need to be rethought, the mindset changes that are required. But I do worry sometimes when I, when I read reports like yours and I read Harvard Business Review and you know, 28 qualities that every leader needs to have, 207 qualities that every leader needs to have. Are we expecting too much of, of you know, human beings when we ask them to be able to get their head around all of this and be a model for all of this change? Well, the, the thing I would challenge back is when we ask, you know, who the we is. I'm, I'm not interested in what we is, is leadership development people or CEOs are asking. I'm interested in what is it that life is asking us to step up to. Yeah. What, 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 what is becoming necessary? And I think your, 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 your comment in question implies that actually it may be that where we've got to an evolution that yes, life is now requiring a, a shift in human consciousness. And that that is, is not, not a choice, it's a necessity. And it's a necessity because, because for better or worse, we, we have developed a world which has over three times more people in it than the year I was born, right? And, and not only we've done that, but we've developed a world which is hyper-connected. So, you know, two billion more people joining the internet in the next three years. Um, there are more internet connected devices in the world than there are people, right? So why is that important? I always argue is that, that the rest of the world now know what the best are getting and they want it. And so, so the rate of interconnection is driving a, a, a level of growth in expectations and growth in complexity. And we also know that with that growth in expectation, that growth in population, that is outstripping the Earth's natural resources. So we can no longer do incremental innovation. We've, we've got to do quantum step change innovation which isn't just doing what we're already doing step-by-step step better. We've got to make a quantum step leap. We've got, to, we've got to innovate out of what the world of tomorrow needs, not, not just improve today's game. Yeah. Now, all of those, I think, just create a, a global necessity for a shift in, in, in human consciousness and a shift in leadership. I think, I think that's got to be right, hasn't it? It isn't about... Um, and, and you make this very clear in, in your study. It isn't about being able to tick a box that says, oh, I can now do this, uh, this, I have this skill and that skill. It's really driven by necessity. It's driven by the, the 
pace of change being so great that we don't even know in the next 10 to 15 years what organizations are going to look like or even what our world is going to look like. Um, one report that, that I read said that within the next 10 years, half of all the jobs that are done by human beings today will be done by bots. No one knows if that's an underestimate or an overestimate or even if it's accurate at all. The, the point is we don't know. And so we're looking for leaders who can get their heads around the, the unknowns of the future and, and, and respond to that or, or even create what that future is going to look like. And that's very different, isn't it, to the kind of expectations we've had of leaders in the past, which was really just a glorified form of management, in fact. Yes, it was, it was constantly improving today's game rather than asking the questions about um, will tomorrow's game be the same game? Yeah. So it's no longer about constantly just improving efficiency, but asking you know, what, what do we need to transform into? So if we have a look at you, you, um, you identify nine tipping points. We, we won't talk about them all, um, but these are changes in our assumptions about, about leadership in effect. And it'd be really good to talk about some of them. You've touched on one of them already, which is the move from leading my people to orchestrating business ecosystems. Now, there's some lovely language in there. <laughs> What does that actually mean, orchestrating business ecosystem? Well, it, it, if, if we go back to what I said about um, Netflix, Amazon, Uber, what, what, what they started to look at is what is the end-to-end -end value chain? Yeah? So once we accept that Actually, it's not just managing within the boundaries of my organization. What I have to think about is what is, what is the way we can be the people who are thinking end-to-end -end process? That's really important. So, you know, I've done a lot of work with, with the National Health Service in the UK. And really all the challenges they have cannot be resolved within the organizational walls of the hospital. They have to start to think, you know, what, what, what's the total um, ecosystem we're involved in? And, and, you know, I have argued that there's no way the NHS becomes sustainable unless we create a culture change whereby doctors, nurses are not treating patients. They're partnering with human beings to manage their own health. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I would mean by that. They're thinking not how do we get more patients through the door, but how do we ship, go to a world where a lot of the demands don't turn up at our door? Yeah. yeah. And then with hospitals, you know, that th they cannot solve the problems unless they change what happens in terms of the amount of people turning up at accident emergency that shouldn't be there. But also, how do they get people out? And I did some work years back between, between the health service and the housing service. And what, what we should have been doing, and I said this 10 years ago and nothing's happened, is we should be saying, look, we need to have changing in building design so that houses are built 
on the ground floor, they have a bathroom, a bedroom, and a kitchen because we're doubling the number of people over 85 who are the biggest consumers of the health service within the next 10 years. Yeah. And, and, and the only way we'll cope with that is we change building design. And if we, once you get to 70, we do a stability check. And if, if your, your balance and stability is beneath a certain threshold, they start putting aids into your house before you fall over and break your leg, not when you're stuck in a hospital and there's a two month delay. And you know, that's just kind of examples of how uh, our whole thinking has to be not about running my bit of the system, but the whole interconnected systemic processes that we need to be part of. And that's really, I mean, that's inspiring in one way. We, we ran a leadership program um, in Wales for um, finance directors from all of the key public services in, in Wales. And so it was cross-service uh, cross cohorts of, of finance people. And this was the first leadership program of its kind in the UK where you might have someone from the police service and someone from the fire service and someone from the NHS doing their leadership development together. And I mean, it was, a, it was brilliant, but it was also quite shocking to me that this was the first time that these guys had been in the room with each other and the, the number of opportunities they saw for conversations that, as you said, dealt with, dealt with problems before they occur and therefore would save these public services millions of pounds, but also would make everyone's life better. <laughs> uh, these were extraordinary. And yet, as I say, it was the, the first, and as I, as I understand it, the only program of its, of its kind. Yeah. Well, um, in fact, I, I went out to the Principality of Wales a few years back, and they were talking about public sector leadership. I don't know how many years. And um, I said, well, they would say, how can they do better leadership? And I said, well, tell me what, what are the main challenges across the whole of the region and we collected all of those every one of their challenges that they all recognized were um, cross-sector issues yeah so I commented on that I said so so what does that tell you about what you need to do about leadership development they said, oh well we all need to nominate individuals to go on programs I said Look, why don't we think the other way around why don't we nominate these wicked issues to go on the leadership development program and then work out who needs to be around the table for those issues and challenges to learn which is which is a, a very different way of thinking yeah so, so 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 you give primacy to the challenge not to the nominated attendees yeah I mean, that's just exactly the kind of almost inside out, upside down thinking that, that leaders need to be doing. But, but I think that it, it's so hardwired into us that we look at, or when I'm at a certain point in my career, I will get leadership development. Or if we're on the HR side, we think, okay, here are our high potential people, let's put them on a program. Or here are our top 70, let's put them on a program. Um, so to, to shift that around, to make it about the issues, does that, does that change how, because it, I'm just wondering about people's egos, actually. When you're put on a leadership program, there's a little ego boost. You're worth it. You're being invested in. And actually, what you're describing is 
it's nothing about you and your ego. It's about the issue and how do we solve the issue? And if you're the right person to help to solve the issue, you'll be on the program. Yeah. Yeah, I often, um, I think I've said in several of the books I've written, you know, when I was young, I thought that, um, that uh, success kind of bought you privilege. And what I've discovered is through my life is success doesn't buy you privilege, it buys you responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think, you know, too, too much leadership development is, you know, here's a little badge, here's a little reward, rather than, all right, well done, you've now earned the right to, to, to take more responsibility across a, a, a more complex canvas. Yeah. And, and that brings me to something you talked about as well in terms of one of these tipping points, which is about purpose. Um, so, you know, if your purpose in seeking a leadership role was for the privilege, the big office, the nice car, the, the salary, the international travel, uh, which we all know is not as glamorous as it seems. Um, if that was what it was for, then it's going to be very difficult for you, isn't it, in this, in this new world. Whereas if you were motivated by a deep sense of purpose and a desire to make a, a positive impact through your professional expertise into the world. So some of the guys I work in within pharmaceuticals who want to save lives, they want to cure diseases. That's what it's about for them. They really couldn't care less about their job title or how big their office is. Is it going to be easier for those people to make some of these shifts than the person that is, that is motivated by career and status? Absolutely. And I think we go, go further and say it's also going to be easier for people who um, aren't attached to certainty and attached to being the one who knows or attached to being the problem solver. It's going to be much easier for those who can, who, who can recognize that leadership is, a, is even more about unlearning than learning. It's more about collaboration than individual problem solving. And it's more about um, constant experimentation rather than it is about certainty. And, and so that, that means I think it, it does require a different... Um, I often say we talk a lot about systemic thinking, but far less is written about systemic being. I think some of the things I've just said are about systemic being rather than systemic thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you think, I, I'm thinking about some of the companies I work with and some of the people that I'm coaching. And I think the challenge for them is um, those that, that are in senior management, maybe in director type roles, is that they, they are wired this way. They, they want to do it this way, but it conflicts with in inverted commas, what a leader looks like. And so they're not necessarily doing things in the way that the CEO might imagine. Um, you know, they're not demonstrating some of the qualities that a, a more old-fashioned type of CEO might be looking for. And so they don't get, they don't necessarily get the opportunities to get to go into those, into those very senior, most senior roles. How do we, um, is that something you've seen yourself? And then how do we almost get get some some maybe more 
conventional thinkers at the very top of the organization to open up their minds to the, to the idea that leadership may look different the way than it, that it's conventionally looked. Well, one of the things, at the end of the report, I talk about you know, why I think from all the findings, 90% of what we're doing in leadership development is no longer fit for purpose. But I also look at why I see some green shoots of, of activity, which I think could give us glimpses of what we might need to be doing in the future. And, and one of those that, that I've got quite involved with a, with a number of companies is not only coaching the senior team around their collaborative leadership, not only how they collaborate within the team, but how they engage others, but at the same time coaching a shadow leadership team drawn from diverse millennials across the business, working on the same issues as the senior leadership team. But what I then discovered that is if you just set that up, and you know, a lot of people are doing sort of challenge-based, what I call challenge-based learning, you know, get, get young groups of future leaders working on the challenges of tomorrow, not the case studies of yesterday. But if you then get them just to report back to the senior team in one of the senior team's meetings, nothing changes. What you've then got to do is you've got to coach the, 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 the dialogue between the senior team and the shadow team. And you've got to make each team responsible for shifting the thinking of the other team. <laughs> Not for getting patted on their head for having good ideas. Yeah. And then you've got to you've got to you've got to make um, help them have a, a, a generative dialogue, which is beyond both their thinking. Yeah. Does that make sense? I love that. I love that, and I can see the the richness and the tensions that emerge from from doing something like that. And I wonder if you know leadership development has always been. Well, I mean, that's a, I don't want to make such a generalization, but it, it, it's, it, it's never been, in my experience, the highest priority for most companies. I mean, they, they've got other priorities. As you said, that most companies, most leaders in most companies are managing a lot of different stakeholders. And so the leadership development program may, may be a thing that sort of happens in the background to the real business of running a company, running an organization. And what you're describing is it becomes the business. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely at the heart of running the organization is leadership and those leaders changing and shifting and, and, and unpicking, unwiring. So, yeah. So I, th I think we have colluded um, for, for far too long in allowing the leadership of organizations to outsource their leadership development responsibilities. I used to describe coaching as forms of outsourcing difficult conversations. Yeah? yeah. So, you know, if you can't, if I have a difficulty with you, Blair, I think, oh dear, I don't know how to, how to have that conversation. I'll ring up HR. And HR being trying to be helpful and say, oh yes, we'll, we'll talk to Blair. And then they think, oh no, gosh, that's going to be difficult will ring up an executive coach. And I think we're beginning to see that being re-insourced, taking the conversations back to where they belong. 
I think the same is absolutely true of leadership development. You know, I was, at a, uh, I was speaking at a, a big event in South Africa a couple of weeks ago. And, um, and I had leaders there from many, many different organizations across sectors. And I began by saying, please stand up, all of you who are responsible for leadership development. And about a quarter of the people stood up. And then let me ask you that question again. Please stand up if you are responsible for developing the people who are going to have to face far bigger challenges in tomorrow's world than we've had to face in our world and, and feel responsible for doing something about that. And I got most people. I said, let me ask you the question a third time. I said, please tell me how you can possibly be still sitting down. <laughs> right? Yeah. When we are creating a legacy of a world which is, you know, billions or more people, higher expectations, diminishing resources, the need to innovate, where we're leaving a legacy of a VUCA world, how can you be sitting down and not responsible for how we are equipping the next generation to deal with the legacy we're leaving them? And reluctantly, the rest of the people still <laughs> And then I said, right, stay standing. Stay standing and look around you. These are the people who are going to, you, know, you and your colleagues, the people who are going to create the leadership of the future South Africa. So now, ask the person next to you, what is it you need to discover this evening to equip you to do that job? And... That got some energy in the room. Yeah, I bet it did. I bet it did. But, but we have to be that, you know, we have to be that in the face of, of, of every manager and every leader to say, look, if, if, if developing the next generation isn't, isn't somewhere on your top three or four top priorities, right, you are letting down the next generation. Yeah. So wake up and smell the coffee. <laughs> And, and th that brings me that to something that you talk about in terms of working in three time frames. Yeah. Because of course, everything we've talked about so far really has been about the future, the future, the future. Um, but there's still a business to run today. So what, what are these three time frames, and how does, a, how does someone make a, a, a stab at getting the balance right between the three of those? Or is it all happening simultaneously? So what we could do, Blair, is we could um, ask people to pause the recording and write down what percentage of their week at work, right, in a pie graph, what percentage do they spend running business as usual? Dealing with yesterday's problems, today's problems, dealing with, with things that other people should have managed and haven't. Right? Write down a, how much of the week is filled with that. Second time horizon is innovating for tomorrow. Right? Improving what we're doing, um, coming up with, with, with new products, new ideas, new processes. What percentage do they spend on that? And the third time horizon is anticipating what's coming over the horizon. What are going to be the needs of tomorrow? we didn't know, yet know how to respond to. What, what are some of the trends and how are we going to position ourselves for, for, for any of those possible scenarios? 
scenario planning risk. Asking, you know, what, what are we going to regret in two years' time not having addressed today? Yeah. Or what's going to come as a, a shock to us in two years' time that we already half know? And, and just write those three figures. And, and then underneath, write what do you think those figures need to be for you to be an effective leader going forward? The percentage you should be for each of those team horizons. And then thirdly, ask the question, pause and ask the question, how are you going to shift your week from the top list of percentages to the bottom list? Fab. Well, then let's do that. So please pause the recording. So we're back. So, so let me just, Blair, let me just tell you, I, I did this with, a, with a, a senior team in Switzerland a couple of weeks ago. By the end of the two days, that top CEO's leadership team decided that within a year, they need to be out of all business as usual, right? And that that was what they were gonna to use to drive a massive culture change in their organization. Because they were gonna to go to the next level and say, you have to work out with and for us how many years time tier three of the company is going to be running the company and all the the operational reality and that, and that we are freed up to be doing horizon three and then innovating out of horizon three not innovating out of today yeah so do you imagine that uh, that most people listening to this will have have the the dominant part of that pie chart being today with a little sliver of either innovating or kind of blue skies thinking about the future. Is that, is that your, your experience so far? Yeah, all the places I've done it in, in many countries in the world. So this isn't, this isn't just a, you know, a local phenomena or a sector phenomena. Most people have quite a big gap between where they are today and where, where they realize they need to be. The problem is they don't have the time to work out how to shift from the first figures to the second figures. If they're so caught up on the hamster wheel that the first figures demonstrate. So does leadership development then offer, the, the future of leadership development, leadership development, offer a space for that kind of thinking? Or, or, or is some of the stuff that you're seeing so integrated into the day-to-day -day that it isn't even this kind of separate space? Well, um, Yes and yes, <laughs> um, because I think we do need leadership development not to be just something we go off one for a week a year to do in a nice hotel or a business school or yeah because we know that there is far too much uh, redundancy in that process. So I did some research years back on on away days of senior teams. And it was depressing because when I asked people, so how much of what you agreed on the away day in that smart hotel got translated into change at work, it was somewhere between north and 30%. And, and you know, that, that, that's, that's no longer acceptable. Uh, when people go off on, on, on training courses, you know, what happens, they come back and someone says, oh, you know, John's been on one of those courses, leave him alone for a week or two and he'll be back to normal. Yeah. Um, that's no longer acceptable. We, we've, 
we've got to build learning and development into the heart of the work. We've got to make every, every, every team a learning team whereby you know, we're looking at, well, how do we change how we do our meetings as normal to shift those time horizons? We've got to build, we've got to, we've got to stop seeing leadership development separate from organizational development. Yeah. So I was also at South Africa, I gave a talk to their big uh, HR organization. And I talked about the necessary revolution in HR. And I said, look, you, you know, there's three things you would have to wake up to in HR. What, one is, um, very soon, the majority of your human capital won't be on your payroll, which we've already talked about. Secondly, that um, most leadership development you're currently doing is not fit for purpose. And thirdly, in five years' time, we won't have a separate LMD, OD, HR, and strategy functions. I'm arguing there'll be one function called the future fit function, right? Because that's the task they all have, which is how do we, how do we constantly make all the human capital, all the teams, all the, all the functions, all the organizations fit for what the future is going to require. And that can't be done in silos of leadership development, OD, coaching, HR, strategy. Yeah. Yeah. That has to be a joined up activity. Yeah. And, and I can see then why that's a revolution because you can almost see the straight line between how HR as we know it today has evolved from personnel. And yeah. then that's, that was its roots. Um, and then other things got attached to it. Um, but actually, have we really seen any revolutions in how has it in how we grow people within organizations the kind of lifelong learning we we put a lot of store in in education up to the age of about 21 22 maybe 24 um and, and then we say okay now you're here and we'll throw a little bit of education at you once a year if you deserve it um we'll certainly make sure you've got some hard skills but basically we're here to just just kind of keep the machine running and actually what, what you're talking about really is a revolution because it is a complete rethink about how we how we get all of this humanity that is required out of the people that work in our organizations for those organizations to still have a place in the world in future and, and let me take it one step further from your phrase people who work in the organization what i'm saying is most most of your human capital won't be in the organization you know I, I i talked to a company in china where most of their marketing wasn't done by the marketing department which was just a small few people who who organized big events with customers and the customers did the marketing the r d was done through competitions around the world right using what um singularity university in silicon valley calls the spare cognitive capacity of the global human family, yeah? yeah. You know, we, so, so actually, you know, you're right, HR is still, still stuck in that, that tradition that comes from the personnel department, and, and they think they're about managing employees. And we still have organizations who, their employee engagement survey is totally separate from their customer feedback surveys, which is totally separate from their investor surveys is totally separate from you know analysts and, and 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 we're not joining all of those up and say this isn't about employee engagement 
This is about how do we engage the whole value chain and all the people within it for us to make a real difference. That's, I mean, even, you know, even for me, and this is my, this, I think about very little else, um, as, as listeners of this podcast will know. And yet even for me to get my head around that is really, is really challenging. So you talk in the report about evaluation. And whenever I see anything about evaluation, I, I feel slightly sick. Um, because it, as soon as you start evaluating, it, it often is that you evaluate what's easy to measure, which isn't necessarily really what should be measured it isn't really how you know if a thing has been effective so so my heart often thinks and yet of course there would be no point in doing any of these things if it doesn't make a difference and you want to know what's working what's not working what needs to be iterated and changed when you've got this such broad remit it isn't just about or people went on a course or it isn't just about even people are getting a better 360 you know, from their, from their team, their peers and their manager. But it is this whole value chain piece about our, all of our stakeholders. How on earth do you evaluate that? Well, it's lovely, isn't it? I think we've got to put the word value back <laughs> in the middle of evaluation. Yeah, lovely. I think in the, in the report I talk about the difference between measuring inputs, like, you know, were... were were the trainers any good? Was it a nice hotel? <laughs> Outputs, what did I come away with in terms of new learning? To outcomes, what has that enabled me to do different? But, but ultimately, value creation. So to give you an example, you know, I've, I've written a lot about um, leadership teams and coaching. I've written books on leadership team coaching and how do we develop highly effective leadership teams. But now I say, look, we shouldn't talk about a high-performing team because th th that, that, that makes it an end goal that somehow we arrive at and we've ticked all the boxes that you know, we have great meetings, we uh, all get on well together, we engage well, we're clear about our purpose, we have clarity. We tick all the boxes. But that is not evaluation, right? What we should talk about is not a high-performing team but teams that continually co-create value with and for all their stakeholders. So in the work I do with top teams, we do a lot around who are we there to serve? What, what's our collective purpose that we can't achieve by working in parallel? What, we, what requires us to collaborate? Who, who are we doing that in service of? And, and what is it, that, what's the value we create for each of those stakeholders? So, you know, I've chaired a few small companies which have grown. And as chairman of the company, I have done a report which says, what did we receive from our investors and what added value did we give back? What did we receive from our customers and what added value have we given back? What did we receive from our employees? What have we received from our suppliers? What have we received from the communities in which we operate? And how have we given that more back? And what have we received from the more than human world of the natural environment? And what added value have we given back? And, and that's based on the fact, and unless we have an outside in, future back, value creation concept, we cannot do evaluation of anything in the business. And we can't do that unless we know 
who we're, who we're there in service of. And what is it that those people need us to step up to and do differently in the future? Do, do you think that some of the most kind of ubiquitous businesses that exist today, that the, the big companies that are kind of driving our economy, do you think there's something, do you think they can do this? I, I'm just wondering if there's something so fundamentally unhealthy about the way business has been constructed and, and how it's evolved that, and the role that business plays in the world that actually there's a revolution needed there as well and that, that many of those organisations will not be able to make this massive leap. The, I, I think I would probably be, be slightly more optimistic about organisations than I would about governments. <laughs> Okay, yes. Very, very timely. <laughs> Explain um, what you mean. Because, because um, most of the challenges in the world can no longer be resolved, uh, can be solved by, by governments. Why? Because, because they're more worried about the next election than they are about the next generation. Yeah? Um, because most of, the, most of the issues cannot be resolved within national boundaries. And we haven't discovered how to do international governance. If I look at organisations, I, I think a number of them have, have more room to manoeuvre than governments do. Yeah. And are less under the, the horrendous uh, social media and, 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 and um, traditional media spotlight. So if I look at um, things like the... Um, the B team group, which includes Paul Polman at Unilever and Richard Branson and uh, CEOs in Germany, America, China, you know, who are actually saying we need purpose-led businesses that actually do step up to um, not just focusing on uh, shareholder quarterly value, but are looking at how, how do they create a positive impact on the world beyond their own borders. I, I think we've got a number of companies, um, big and small, that are becoming a lot more purpose-led and a lot more responsible for a, a much wider um, spread of, of, of focus. And, and, and that, that gives me hope. And, um, and, and, and ultimately, companies that don't do that are not going to survive. Companies have probably more resources and, and, and greatest maneuverability that they're going to have to take on more responsibility that governments have traditionally taken on. Yeah, I think that's really important. The, the, um, the 2017, and by the time this interview goes out, um, the 2018 numbers will probably be available, but the 2017 Edelman Trust Barometer described trust in crisis globally and that business... Um, so governments, um, media, highly distrusted. Businesses sat at, I think it was about 51, 52%, something like that trust. So just above the, the sort of 50% 50, 50 mark. Um, on the brink of distrust is what they described it as. And it led me to really think that if anyone is going to, if any of the institutions is gonna turn around this distrust that we have, um, it's, got, it's going to be business is probably best placed because at least we 
51% trust them, <laughs> as opposed to sort of 48, 47% for, for government. And, and, you know, if you look at, um, you know, you were saying about uh, our, our predictions for the future. All the companies, their prediction about how, the, the cost of renewable energy and its efficiency. Uh, I was talking to um, uh, one of the energy companies in this country that they set a goal in 2015 for 2020 to, to get um, offshore wind energy down to less than 100 pounds per kilowatt hour right, in 2020. By 2017, they'd already got it down to 75 pounds per kilowatt hour. Way, way ahead. So, so our, our ability to, to, to reduce child mortality in the world, our ability to, to get the cost of renewable energy and the efficiency of it down is way ahead of what anyone was predicting 10 years ago. Part of the, 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 the chink of light is human ingenuity is extraordinary. But our ability to match that ingenuity with joined up thinking, joined up collaborative leadership, joined up um, change is lagging behind. So I, I talk a lot about, you know, if the last 30 years of leadership development was moving the agenda from IQ to EQ, the next 30 years, we've got to move it from IQ to WeQ. Yeah, collaborative intelligence because our collaborative intelligence is not keeping up with the human ingenuity of solving extraordinary technical challenges. What is the, um, the biggest barrier, do you think, to rethinking leadership, leadership development, business in, in this way? Well, but my, my first thought is that, that some of this is happening, but not nearly enough. We've got to go right back to how we do education from, from the word go. Because if we really are going to, to shift WeQ, we've got to stop believing that you, 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 you measure educational attainment within individuals. Yeah? You've got to, you've got to build collaboration and the need to collaborate into learning from kindergarten, nursery schools forward. Yeah? yeah. Because um, none of the, none of the, as I said already, the organizations can possibly be led by heroic CEOs and none of the challenges in the world could be resolved by, by, by heroic individual thinkers. Yeah, that's not the world we live in any longer but we're still educating for, for, for a 19th century world. Yeah, not a 21st century one. Yeah. Individual, you know, examination attainments, um, examination competition. And, 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 and that's one of, our, one of the things we're gonna to have to address if we're gonna create the leadership we need for tomorrow. We're gonna, it's, no, it's no good to, just starting when someone becomes a CEO. <laughs> no, way too late. Far, far too late. You've got to start it for. So, um, and you know, there are, when I look at, at what's happening in some of my grandchildren's schools, there are signs that things are shifting, but not nearly fast enough. 
No, I mean, that's a whole other revolution. And, and again, I, I've um, recently interviewed uh, Carrie McDonald, who is a, a, a writer and a, a, an expert on self-directed learning and um, the future of education. So lis listeners who are curious about this, who haven't heard that interview, should definitely go back and listen to that. Um, and, but Blair, we must get beyond self-directed. Yes. Okay. Oh, my head is going to melt. <laughs> to challenge centred learning, not self, but, but challenged and collaboration centred learning. Yeah. You know, what we need to do is, is, is give challenges to groups of children that none of them can solve by themselves. Yeah. And that they have to organise themselves to, 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 to come up with a way of responding to which would drive collaboration and generative dialogue and thinking. We need to be teaching generative dialogue in, 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 in to four-year-olds. This is, this is so good, uh, but I, I've got so much learning to do in this area and thinking to do in this area with other people. You, we all have. Yes. And, and so and we, 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 won't, we won't do it, none of us would do it by ourselves, we'll only do it together. No, I mean, so that, that kind of leads me to my, my final question, really, which is for those of us who are slightly older, you know, that, that, that ha are a bit stuck in our ways of thinking, even those of us that think of ourselves as quite innovative thinkers, where, where do we start? What, what, can we, what can we shift in the way that we think so that we can be part of this revolution and not just wait for the next generation to fix it for us? Two, two things that uh, when I got to 60 and sold my consultancy business, I realized I, it was time I started to answer my own question, which I use all the time, which is what, what can I uniquely do that the world of tomorrow needs? Yeah. And I think we all have to ask that question at every phase of our, uh, of our career and our life. Um, but it changes and, and we have to learn about eldership, which is different from leadership. And if leadership is about when we step into not, not now, how do I succeed or how do I get on, but, but what, what is it? What's the difference I can make in the world? Eldership is when we start to ask the question, what, what can we do to enable others? Yeah. And, and there is certain things that, that come with the privilege of not having to, to earn money, that um, not having to build a career, that, that give you something different that you can bring to the party, right? So, so we've always had this model that you get more and more in senior and then you stop, which we know for your health is a crazy thing to do. So we, all organizations need to think about not only how we do leadership development, but how do we do eldership development and how are these all joined up and how are the elders making a contribution back, back in that only they can make. So, um, you know, I was, when I was in Switzerland, they said, Look, how come you're still working and um, so much and traveling the world? And I said, well, look, the problem is I, I can't get this quality of intellectual stimulation and new learning for myself from my old people's day center. So that's why I'm sitting with you guys. Uh -huh. And I will continue to do that until, you know, um, life comes along and stops me. <laughs> well, I hope you do, Peter. I've, I found this conversation fascinating and I, 
I can't wait um, to, to put it out on the air and for people to hear it too. They can also go to the original report, of course, and I'll put a link to that um, in the show notes. But thank you so much. It's been fascinating and mind melting and brain enhancing, life enhancing for me. So thank you so much. Well, it's been great talking with you and, uh, uh, and it's lovely to talk to people like you, you because every time I discover something new as well, and, and um, just to end with an Azrudin story, he said, when asked when he was very old how he got to be so wise, he says, it, it, it's quite simple. He said, I just talk a lot. And when I see people nodding their heads, I write down what I've said. <laughs> but, so, so thank you for the learning you've provided me with. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I did that recording a while ago and listening to it again, it reminded me how important it is that we question really all of our fundamental assumptions about work, how we work, the role of business in the world. And it reminds me why I'm being a guinea pig this year, stripping back as many of the industrial age conventions of work and life as possible and taking that as far as I can just to see what is doable. Do you need a home? Do you need an office, a base, a fixed location, working hours, childcare? Do you need a distinction between work and life? Or can all of this be dropped in favour of a way of working and living where every part is blended? Let's see, shall we? (laughs) So I'm back next week with more information about how the podcast is changing and uh, some new projects. We'll be revealing, drip feeding that to you over the next few weeks. And of course, some other topic, which will be based on something that happens between now and that show. If you want to stay in touch, I would love to hear from you. You could follow us on Instagram, on Facebook. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter. We have email, of course, and with information about all of that. Here's the lovely Ivy Palmer. We'd love to hear from you. You can stay in touch with us on Instagram at Punks and Suits and on our Punks and Suits Facebook page. You can also sign up to our newsletter at www.thatpeoplething.com. I'll say it again www.thatpeoplething.com You can also find out more about working with Mummy as a speaker or as a coach on that website too. And please leave a comment and a star rating on iTunes. Please five stars before it's fine. Go ahead and do that now, as it helps other people find this podcast so that they can reveal more of the part underneath their